0: Good morning, everybody. We're in a series on Romans 8, which I've been describing as the greatest chapter in the entire Bible because of its emphasis on the absolute security of a Christ follower. So, if that's you today, if you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, you can know with absolute security and confidence that your relationship is solid in terms of your connection with God now and forever. The problem is what? Well, the problem is oftentimes though we struggle. We struggle with doubts, we struggle with feelings of insecurity, oftentimes brought on by our moral struggles and repeated failures to honor God. And so we're left oftentimes wondering, how can I be a Christian and behave like this? Do I again fall under God's condemnation? Does he kick me out of his family? Do I lose my relationship to him? Am I doomed to failure? All of these things are part of the normal struggles, unfortunately, of Christian people. Now it's certainly encouraging for us to know, as the Apostle Paul will go on to assert before the end of this chapter, that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from God's incredible love to us in Jesus Christ. No, not even our moral failures. He began the chapter by emphasizing the fact there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You can never again, as a Christ follower, fall under condemnation. Why is that? Justice has been satisfied. You have already been punished for your sin in the person of your substitute, Jesus Christ. But we still struggle. Now, knowing that nothing can separate us from God's love, that we're secure in that relationship, however, does not excuse us to commit sin. But it certainly is encouraging for us to know that despite our failures, God is committed to you, committed to your care and committed to your growth. Oftentimes, at least in the past, it was fairly common for Christian writers to refer to these repeated, Failures, oftentimes in the same areas of life that we tend to struggle with, as our besetting sins. Have you ever heard that phrase? Besetting sins. What are they? Those annoying, oftentimes overwhelming areas of moral struggle. Now, my struggles may not be the same as yours, but the reality is we all have them. Now, maybe for some of us who are here this morning, It's what we tend to think about. In other words, we tend to focus our attention on rather debilitating thoughts about ourselves or others. Just to give you some examples, for some of us, there may be a tendency to judge others. We don't know all the facts. We don't know a person's motives. But what do we do? We draw a premature, negative, conclusion about them and then sometimes we'll pass on those negative conclusions as if they were factual to our closest friends, those that we think will listen to us and support our our concerns and interests. So we do that or for others of us it's feelings of anxiety. Maybe it's discouragement, feelings of worthlessness, marital apathy. If you're not putting into your relationship, that offends God, he cares about that. Or maybe for you it's lust or envy, it's pride, it's greed, it's ingratitude, impatience, especially toward family members. Maybe for you it's jealousy or doubt, self-hatred, hatred of other people. Could be that you have a domineering, controlling sort of personality. So those are just samples of the kinds of things some of us may struggle with in the realms of realm of thought life. Now, with others of us, it's our tongues that get us into trouble with uh, ourselves and other people. Maybe it's you know dishonoring, disrespecting authority. Maybe it's issues of anger, harsh, condemning, hurtful things we say to other people. Maybe it's gossip or it's Biting sarcasm, it's crude joking, it's vulgar speech, it's misusing God's name. Say, how do I misuse God's name? Whenever we call God Father, but we're filled with anxiety or doubt, that's misusing his name. Whenever we call God Lord, but then potentially disobey him, walk away from him in that sense, that's taking his name in vain. Whenever we make use of God's name flippantly in everyday conversation, it's OMG, you know, posted on social media, whatever. Flippant light use of the sacred name of God, that's taking his name in vain. So some of us struggle with our thoughts, debilitating ideas. For others of us, it's our tongues that get us into trouble. For still others, it's outward behavior that hurts ourselves and others. Gluttony. Neglecting evangelism, that's disobedience to God. It's porn use, it's substance abuse. We could go on and on. The point is that we all struggle. You do, so do I. And so the key question, I think, that needs to be asked this morning is this. What are we gonna do about these struggles of ours? Well, ultimately, God is not gonna kick you out of his family And he's never going to allow sin to separate you from his love. That does not absolve us from responsibility. So how is it with you? Do you tend to tolerate your area of vulnerability, your besetting sin? Do you feed it? Do you pamper it? Do you feel totally inadequate to deal with your area of struggle? Let's consider these words. Look at this quotation. Believers who are assuredly free from the condemning power of sin. I'll stop there for a second. Remember Romans 8, verse 1? There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God the judge has declared you have right standing before him because of Christ. So, believers who are surely free from all of that, the condemning power of sin, ought to make it their business all their days to mortify, that is to kill, the indwelling power of sin. Now those are the written words of a 17th century Puritan theologian, some would argue the greatest English-speaking theologian, John Owen, which he wrote in his discourse entitled The Mortification of Sin. Now originally, those were messages that he gave to teenage boys at Oxford University, where he served as Vice Chancellor for a period of time. And his text for those series of messages that became a book were part of our text for the morning, Romans 8 and verse 13, which in the old King James Version of the Bible, which he certainly had access to, and many of us used growing up as kids, says the following. If you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. So what was Owen's great topic, the mortification or the killing of sin, is our topic this morning. As we come to two verses in Romans chapter eight, verses 12 and 13. So with that as an introduction, I'm gonna invite you to stand for the reading of God's truth. Let's stand together as I read Romans 8 verses 12 and 13. God is speaking to us, let's hear God's truth. Therefore brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh. Now let me just pause there to say, Paul is not referring to your physical body here, using the term flesh, he he is using the term to refer to your sinful nature, okay? The old sin nature we have an obligation, but it's not to the old sin nature of the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the old sin nature of the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death, you mortify, you kill the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Here ends the reading of God's truth. Please be seated. So what are we going to do with these besetting sins of ours? Are we doomed to live in guilt, sense of shame, embarrassment, defeat? The answer, no. Paul is here asserting that the indwelling spirit has been given to us to enable us to put these desires to death, to mortify them. So today that's our topic. We're going to talk about how do we actually do that? And if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to notice on the flip side that there are two key points in bold and they each begin, the key word in each of those begins with the letter M. So we're going to talk about the mindset that we need to kill sin and then the method. How do we actually go about doing it? So first of all, we want to talk about the mindset. That's the attitude. That's the the mental outlook we need as Christ followers if we're going to be putting our sinful passions and besetting sins to death. So what is that about? The mind is so key in Christian growth and maturity. In fact, a number of years ago now, John Stott, one of my favorite writers, wrote this gem of a little book entitled Your Mind Matters. And one of the many things he asserts in that book is that the mind is crucial for framing proper thoughts about God and yourself and the world in which we live to enable us then to address all of the brokenness in our lives and the lives of others and in our world today. So the mind matters. So key, there are three key principles that we need to keep before us to frame biblical understanding, a mindset, to deal with sin. Now the first of these three may be rather obvious in light of what I've already shared with you this morning, but as Christians, we still deal with indwelling sin. Paul makes it very clear in the earlier chapters of this letter that all people, you're not the exception to this, all people by nature or birth are under the control of sin. We're born into this world as little addicts. We're sin addicts. We're addicted to it, now we have free will. But the problem is, as Martin Luther asserted in one of his classic works entitled The Bondage of the Will, our wills are enslaved, okay? So in chapter six, Paul emphasized that we were slaves to sin. In fact, he compares sin to an old sin master, personifying sin, so let's call him Mr. Sin. So whenever Mr. Sin said to Rich, Rich, think these debilitating thoughts about yourself or other people. You know what Rich said? I'm on it, Mr. Sin. Rich, I want you to engage in hurtful things. Say things that are going to be damaging to yourself or other people. Okay, I'm there, Mr. Sin. You're my boss. I'm doing what you instruct me to do. Mr. Sin would say, Rich, I want you to engage in these sinful activities. All right, bring it on. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So we did what our master told us to do. But you see, all of that has now changed. We serve a new master now, a new boss. There's a new sheriff in town. Look at these verses in Romans chapter 6. Thanks be to God that though you used to be, you notice the past tense here you used to be slaves to Mr sin you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of the of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance you have been set free from Mr sin and have become slaves to a new master now to righteousness now even though we no longer function under the ruling controlling power of sin we're justified God has worked his Holy Spirit in us and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, sin dwells in us as believers. It's no longer the president, but it's still present. Paul, in the previous chapter, Romans chapter seven, gives us a picture of his own moral struggle as a Christ follower. So this is what he says. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, that is to honor God, I don't do. But what I hate, the sinful stuff, I do. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Wretched, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And the answer will come here in Romans chapter 8. So Paul is dealing with his struggle as a Christian. Yes, you have the remains of sin in you. It's no longer the commander-in-chief. It's no longer your leader or your boss, but the remains of sin are there, and you have a new nature that yearns to please God. The Holy Spirit has given you his life. You're connected to Christ. And these two natures, as it were, within you are at war with each other. All right, So that's what's going on. So sin is still very much present. Robert Murray McShane, a 19th century pastor, theologian, Presbyterian, described our struggle like this. He would say that the seed of every known sin lies within our hearts. Think about that for a moment, especially the next time you're tempted to think you are so much better than some racist, or you're so much morally superior than some killer. The seed of every known sin lies in my heart and in yours. So we may not be as sinful as we could be. We could be far greater sinners. But the reality is we have particular sins, areas of vulnerability and struggle besetting sins. So we still deal with indwelling sin. That's the first thing we need to keep in mind to develop a Christian mindset to deal with sin. Second one, there ought to be in us as Christ followers a desire to deal with indwelling sin. We should want to deal with our areas of vulnerability, to grow, so that we're more like Christ Jesus this year than, say, we were a year ago. So if you were charting your growth projection, ideally, it's going up. Now, what it tends to do is it's some bumps, you know, it's going up, but hopefully over time, as you look at your, your growth pattern, it's not stagnant, it's not down, way at the bottom. You know, there's some consistent growth that's going on in your life. So ideally, we're reflecting what Paul calls in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. This is the goal, to live out a Christ-likeness where we reflect the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, what else? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So number one, we need to deal with sin. Number two, we want to deal with sin. I mean, that is true for you, isn't it? You do desire to deal with your stuff, don't you? Or is that part of the problem? I mean, maybe, maybe you we're just content with whatever level of spiritual growth we have attained. So we can say, you know what? My family's more spiritual than yours. We go to church more frequently. Or I'm more godly than you are. I read my Bible every day, you know, whatever. Is that part of the problem? Maybe the reason we struggle with certain besetting sins is because we don't really want to deal with our brokenness, our stuff. Let's face it. We wouldn't sin at all if sin wasn't pleasurable. Anybody who tells you that sin isn't fun, they're lying to you. It is fun. Or we wouldn't sin. It's attractive. There's immediate gratification that we get from sin. So maybe that's where we're stuck. I mean, I hope that's not the case with you. I mean, I hope everybody here listening online or those present all want to deal with our our sin. So that leads us to a third principle. Number one, we need to deal with sin. Number two, or B, we want to deal with sin. Three, we're able to deal with our sin. Yes, we used to be slaves to Mr. Sin. As Paul declared in Romans 6, though, we're now united to Christ. The life of Christ pulsates within us, giving us desires and new interests. We've been born of the Spirit. In fact, I think it's amazing to me, very few references to the Holy Spirit in the first seven chapters of Romans. We come to chapter 8, and in the first 27 verses alone, there are 19 references to the Spirit by name. Telling us what? Christian life is a life lived in the spirit. It's a new life now, a changed life. We've undergone a radical moral and spiritual transformation. So yeah, we may still sin. But the reality is, you know what? When we do, it's really a denial of who we are. We're Christ followers. We belong to Jesus. There's a story involving Martin Luther that I think illustrates this. You know, Martin Luther oftentimes had had battles with Satan. It's one occasion he grabbed a a bottle of ink and threw it against the wall thinking that Satan was attacking him in some way. But that's not the story I wanna share, it's this one. There's a time, maybe this is apocryphal, that um, Satan came knocking on his study door. Hello. Hello, is Martin Luther there? No answer at first. More knocking. Hello, is Martin Luther there? Luther finally replied, no. Martin Luther doesn't live here anymore. A new man in Christ lives here now. Yeah, that was Luther's way of reminding himself, I'm a new person. I have a new identity. I belong to Jesus now. So we need to deal with sin. We want to deal with sin. We're able in Christ by the Spirit to deal with sin. How? What's the method? How do we actually put these sinful passions and desires to death? Let me just remind you, that's what we're called to do. If by the Spirit, we have an obligation, if by the Spirit you put to death or mortify the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So how do we do it? I wanna share with you five action steps And it's not as though you and I can pick and choose here. Yeah, I think I'll take B, maybe C or D. It's a package deal, okay? So first, or A on your outline, strike at the first awareness of temptation. Strike at the first awareness of temptation. Maybe you've heard of the the term trigger warnings. You know what they are, right? It's the warning that comes up when you're watching, about to watch a film, or you're hearing a lecture, or it could be a work of literature, where there's gonna be some content shared that could be offensive, or even trigger a painful memory. So you're given this trigger warning, this show contains strong adult language, scenes of sexual violence, or whatever. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that every time you and I are tempted to sin, God gives us a way out. He gives us a trigger warning. I'll show you some verses about that shortly. So here we are about to indulge a particular thought or engage in an action that's gonna dishonor God. By the way, I hope you understand it's not a sin to be tempted. As James chapter one makes abundantly clear that sin occurs when we yield to that to which we are enticed. So he uses a fishing term. Today is, well, this weekend is what? Fishing opener, at least in the state of Wisconsin. So imagine there's a bait. You know, you're the fish, and this bait, this enticement, this lure is dangled in front of you. It's attractive. It really looks good. There's going to be pleasure here. This is going to satisfy your life. That's not the sin. The sin occurs when we yield, right? When we bite the bait. So Luther used to say it like this. You can't keep the birds, to change the analogy from fishing, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but they don't have to build a nest in your hair. And that was his characteristic way of saying, you know what, you can't help being tempted. Welcome to the human race. Even Jesus was tempted, but of course he never sinned. So you can't help being tempted, but you don't have to yield. So it starts with some modest proposal. Hey, come on. Everybody cheats on their tax forms. Everybody pads their expense accounts and turns in their receipts, manipulating them a bit. I mean, that's just common stuff. Hey, come on. Your spouse isn't meeting your needs anymore. So you strike at the first awareness of temptation. How? How do you do that? Well, I want to offer you a suggestion. I hope you don't blow it off and think it's simplistic because it certainly did work for Jesus. What is it? To make use of scripture. So in the three accounts of temptations, he had more than these, but the three recorded in Matthew chapter four, each time he responds to the temptation of the evil one by quoting the word of God, scripture. It was like a trigger warning to which he could hang on to to help him to resist that temptation. So here's what I'm suggesting to you. Imagine as a result of your involvement in growth groups, Sunday morning communities, coming here listening to Bible teaching or just your own reading of scripture. Periodically you're coming across verses of scripture that address your particular area of vulnerability. What do you do? You memorize the verse. You write it out. You put it in a prominent location so you're going to be reminded of it especially during times of vulnerability. Let me give you some examples. Philippians 4, let's say you're struggling with anxiety issues. Who doesn't, right? So we're reminded of God's promise. Look at these verses. Do not be anxious about anything. Yeah, good luck with that. But in every situation by prayer, Now, stop there for a second. The word prayer really is introducing the thought of worship. You're coming into the presence of your heavenly Father. Okay? So you're aware of that. And petition. What's that? Well, you're telling God, you're making a your request, telling I'm anxious about this right now, Lord. With thanksgiving, what, what's he going to do? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's this all about? What's he really saying here? Philippi was located in Greece, or what used to be called Macedonia, but it was really like a little city of Rome. Roman troops were stationed there, okay? And so Paul uses a military word here. Here's the enemy, Mr. Anxiety, trying to get inside the capital, your hearts and your minds, to make you miserable, to stress you out. So you pray like this, and the promise is, general peace is gonna be the sentry on guard duty. He's gonna keep the enemy, Mr. Anxiety, outside the citadel, outside your heart and your mind. How's he gonna do that? By reminding you of who and what you are in Christ Jesus and what Jesus did for you. So that's the promise. Or let's say you tend to be deceitful with customers. You're constantly lying to them about what your company products are capable of doing, just to increase the bottom line. Or you're lying about delivery dates. You want that by Tuesday? No problem. You know they're not going to get it until the following week. Or maybe you're lying to other students at school, embellishing stories, whatever it is. okay. you recall Ephesians 4.25. Each of you must not put off falsehood Speak truthfully to your neighbor for all members of one body. Could it be that others of us struggle today with forgiving somebody? You've been holding on to this for far too long. So you recall Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Or in general, you're learning and applying a promise like 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. You want a trigger verse warning? Here it is. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. You're not unique in that regard. God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he's gonna give you a trigger warning. He will show you a way out so that you can endure strike at the first awareness of temptation. How? By making use of scripture verses that address your area of vulnerability. All right, number two, or B, do not be content with partial obedience. You know, sometimes as Christians, we get smug, self-righteous. Self-satisfied, you know, we get a few victories and we say, wow, I mean, this is amazing. I haven't lost my temper more than six times this month. Or we'll say, yeah, I have less screen this week on porn than last week. Amazing, aren't I wonderful? I judged only someone's motives twice since yesterday. You know, whatever, yay for me. Paul is saying, look, Don't be content with partial obedience. Strive to be as holy a woman or a man as you can possibly be as a saved individual. Set your mind to what the spirit desires. And what does he desire? Godliness, holiness, likeness to Christ, the fruit of the spirit, okay? John Owen famously said it like this, kill sin or sin will kill you. Yeah, good warning. So how do I do that? Strike at the first awareness of temptation, don't be content with partial obedience, see on your outline, kill sin at its source. Where does sin begin? What is its source? Well, let's back up just a little bit here. In the previous verses, 8 through 11, the Apostle Paul was talking about the mindset developing a Christian mind, remember that? So where does God-honoring behavior begin? In the mind, which influences feelings, which then influence behavior. So where then does sin begin? In the mind, in the thought. That thought will seek to work itself out in some kind of action. So instead of feeding it and dwelling on it, kill it. Owen made use of a rather graphic illustration of this in his book on the mortification of sin. He talks about laying your hands around the neck of that sin and squeezing it until that sin can't breathe any longer. That's the graphic image that he's giving to us. Killing sin at its source. You say, well, that sounds nice in theory, but what does that really mean? Can you get practical? All right, what does it mean? Well, it means, among other things, let's say you have a temper problem. You tend to explode in anger, or you internalize a lot of that anger. You keep it all bottled up inside. Of course, it's going to come out sideways. And you discover in your circumstance, you know what? I tend to get grouchy and irritable and take things out on the kids, my spouse, my friends, when I know I'm cheating on my sleep. Well, this may not sound very spiritual, but the answer is discipline yourself to get to bed on time, if that's what you need to do in order to address that issue. Or let's say in dating, you have problems with keeping your hands to yourself, touching body parts that you have no business touching. What do you do? Well, it means you spend more time with your friends. It means you avoid the places where you're tempted to do that. Listen, if you are serious about honoring God with your life, cultivating a God-honoring attitude, even in the person that you're dating, that's what you're going to do, okay? You're killing sin at its source. All right, D on your outline, or number four, get support from others. Now, there are several things in our text that draw attention to this theme. There's the reference, verse 12, to our being brothers and sisters. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. There's the plural you in verse 13 showing us we belong to a family, the family of God, the Christian community, the church, okay? If by the Spirit you, plural, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you, plural, will live. You see, sin is never just a personal act. We like to think it is. You know, we like to think what we're doing in darkness nobody finds out about. Let me ask you this question Do you really think if, let's say, you overwork and you have a tendency to do that because it strokes you, makes you feel good to know when others pat you on the back because you're doing everything for the organization? or you're overworking because you're basically a materialist at heart so you can make more money to buy stuff? Do you really think that your kids, your spouse, is totally oblivious to what's going on in your life? I mean, you're damaging the entire family. They're aware of it. Mom, dad is overworking because they care more about their own image and ego than they do about me. Or do you think it's? Just you and your sin, when you're constantly telling your kids how stupid they are, how dumb, they'll never amount to anything. That's what I used to hear a lot when I was a kid growing up. I mean, you think that influenced me? You bet it does. So sin is never just a personal thing, which means, among other things, we need the help of other people to help us to deal with our stuff. We really do. So. Growth in Christ is is not a just, you know, it's not a matter of just Jesus and me. It's Jesus and me in community. It's Jesus and me in my growth group. It's Jesus and me in my one-to-one mentoring relationship. So we're part of the body of Christ, and we need one another. You need to find at least one trusted Christian friend with whom you can be vulnerable. Is that hard? Very I can recall a time in my life when I decided I was going to open up and share some stuff with a Christian counselor I was seeing on a regular basis. I was scared. But I also hated what my behavior was doing inside of me. The the guilt, the sense of embarrassment and shame it was causing, I had to deal with it. So here comes the confession. And as soon as I made it, it was as if somebody flipped on the lights. And it was exposed for what it really was. It's out in the light now, the truth of my behavior. You know what? For the first time, I felt free. It was healing. It began the whole process of restoration from my brokenness. Get support from others, at least one Christian friend with whom you can be vulnerable, but you're not going to be able to adequately deal with your stuff. All right, number five or E. Remind yourself of your new identity in Christ. Again, Paul says we have an obligation to put to death the misdeeds of the body, but not for salvation, not for your justification. You've already been declared righteous by God, not even to win God's love. He loves you as much as he loves his son Jesus. We'll talk about that more in in coming weeks as we continue here in Romans chapter 8. We're in Christ now. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So don't let that happen to you. Remind yourself of your new identity in Christ. Wow, look at what I have in Jesus. How can I fail him or let him down? I, Out of love, out of gratitude for all he's done for me, I want to obey him and trust him and by his grace honor him with my life. So how is it with you this morning? You know, it's easy to be against sin, but what about your specific sins? Can you name your besetting sins today? Could you write them down? And what's your game plan for dealing with them? I mean, what specific steps do you intend to take as a result of the teaching today to deal with your stuff? You're saying, what? You really expect me to do something with the sermon today? Yeah, how about that? God does, and he's given you the gift of his Holy Spirit to do just that. So here's the question. Am I dealing with my specific sins because of Jesus and my new identity in him? And not just dealing with sin in a general way, am I going to implement a plan, a strategy, to put these specific sins to death because that is what they deserve? Friends, this morning, we have an awesome privilege. You know what it is to remember Jesus, to partake of the elements in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup reminding us of the night in which he was betrayed and he instituted a meal for us to remember him. And so the bread, once broken, Reminds us of how the body of Jesus was broken and sacrificed for us. And the, the juice once poured out illustrates, for a, it's a visual aid. It's a reminder to us of how the blood of Jesus was poured out to provide a, a covering, a cleansing. So when a holy God looks down on you, he doesn't see your sin, your brokenness. What does he see? Blood, atonement blood, the blood of his dear son that covers all of your guilt and all of your sin. So this is the meal for Christians, for believers. And if you're not there yet, oh man, you're missing out. You can walk out of here today freed up from your guilt by entrusting yourself to Jesus this morning. So why not do that and then come and confess your sins to him, confess, Lord, I need a savior, and then come and join the rest of us as we partake of these elements. So I'm going to ask now the servers to come forward to get in place to join me up here today we're observing communion once again by intinction so in a moment i'm going to invite you to get up those of you that are physically able to do this and get out of your seats and use the side aisles to come down in front one person will offer you gluten-free bread you take it you dip it in the juice you partake of the elements up front here and then you use the center aisle to return to your seat. Hear then the words of institution. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, our Lord took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance me. let's pray together. Father, we thank you that when we sincerely acknowledge our brokenness and our stuff, our sin, instead of hiding it, making excuses to justify it, you promise to forgive us. You're a faithful God to forgive. So thank you for your forgiving grace, Thank you for the bread that serves as a beautiful picture of the body of Jesus broken in sacrifice and the cup reminding us of his shed blood. Father, we're asking you this morning to use this time of reflection that we might be drawn close to you. And may your spirit take these symbols and use them to remind us of our fellowship with you and with one another, renewing our faith and our hope.